Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, and I am joined by the illustrious Jessica Luther and the fabulous Dr. Amir Rose Davis. This week, we'll be talking about refereeing, officiating, the good, the bad, and the what the hell was that call? To jump right into it, we're going to start with a question, a question for both of you. The Cleveland MLB team has recently changed its name. How do we feel about said name change other than obviously it needed to be changed to respect Indigenous communities and history of opportunistic masketry? Jessica, how do you feel about the Cleveland Guardians? I feel fine. I like the Guardians on the bridge that they're named after. They look cool as hell. I I think it's funny that anyone has a problem with the name. So um, I looked up to see why they're called the Cleveland Cavaliers, because like, what's that name? And it turns out, I just want to let you guys know, here's my history lesson for today, that the new basketball team in 1970, they just did a name the team contest. And some dude named Jerry (laughs) thought that Cavaliers were cool. So he wrote an essay about it and drew a picture of a swashbuckler. And he wrote that the Cavalier quote represents a group of daring, fearless men whose life pact was never surrender, no matter what the odds. That's how they chose Cavaliers. So I'm excited about Guardians. It's cool that it has a connection directly to the city, to a piece of architecture that's very close to the stadium. And the other thing I wanted to say was there was someone on Twitter responding, Shiv Ramdas. And my favorite part of his tweet was, quote, the most successful NBA franchise of all time is named after Lakes. (laughs) It will be okay. I promise you. I saw that. Yeah. And that's because they were from Minneapolis. Like, it's not even, it has nothing to do with Los Angeles. It's right. So, ugh, whatever. Amira? First of all, obviously happy about the name change. I didn't love the rollout video that kind of failed to even address the reason why they were changing the name and used the kind of same typeface that gestured back to it. So I didn't love that. But my, what I did love is they said, the Guardians and dot, dot, dot. And somebody was like, of the galaxy? Oh, wait, yeah. no, of Cleveland. <laughs> and I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. But it's, it's like the gap between the Guardians of the Galaxy and of Cleveland is like so funny to me. There should be an MCU crossover. Exactly. Oh, we my God. We need that crossover. now, Cleveland. A Cleveland crossover. <laughs> I mean, I saw a tweet by Dave Zarin that made me laugh so much. And he said, the Guardians is a great name because it draws on the city's history and civic pride. By that metric, the Washington football team should be the D.C. Ben's Chili Bowls. <laughs> Open to other suggestions. <laughs> Refereeing. Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Has it always been bad? One of the things that we think about with refereeing, and I know I'm personally scarred from a decision from uh, 2012 during the Olympics against the Canadian women's national team, against specifically goalkeeper Aaron McLeod. And I bring this up very regularly, and you listeners know that this is one of those things that has actually stayed with me. Um, I wonder about that referee, notably that I will never go to Norway because of that referee and how still sad I am about that call. But that call in particular and the way that refs can shape or change a trajectory of history, perhaps, and what it looks like. Um, There was a really great article by Chris Thompson in The Defector 
about game four, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Phoenix Suns and the 2021 NBA Finals. And it was talking about refereeing. And I just want to start with this. Quote, what I think is perfectly fair to say is that the fans are far more acquainted with the concept of a bailout whistle than they are with a bailout soaring from out of nowhere block. The latter is what Wednesday nights, don't say pivotal, don't say pivotal, don't say pivotal, don't say pivotal, game four produced during a chaotic fourth quarter stretch when it seemed like both the referees and the Milwaukee Bucks had finally lost control of the proceedings. And then further in the article, he says, the foul was so obvious that Mike Breen just calmly described it in real time as if it had been called before gasping and shouting, they didn't call it, they didn't call it. And Giannis dropped to follow in the follow to bring the score within a point. But in the moment, this felt like the referees had made a determination about who was going to win the game. Booker had been unstoppable all night, and he just sacrificed himself to keep a measly two points off the board, and the referee simply looked the other way. So, I mean, this is a specific incident that we, that's very fresh in memory that we can look to to say the call was not made. The call was not made where it ought to have been. And, you know, with watching and being invested, and we're talking about the NBA Finals here. We're talking about Game 4, and for those who don't know, the Bucks won in six, but to know that this this happened this way brings us to the question do we even notice good refing or do we only pay attention when it's bad jessica yeah i think we mainly pay attention when it's bad there's like this emotional attachment to games like just like you have shereen <laughs> where it feels like the refs did a bad job whereas when things run smoothly and as they should we might make a note of it in the moment but we don't like carry that with us it's not like imprinted on us the way that bad refing uh, seems to be so it's like when the refs are good we barely notice them when they're bad they become a write-up at the ringer right and like live <laughs> forever um, it's interesting because obviously people get very upset about it and rightly so I think but also at the same time I just think we kind of love yelling at bad refs like when I go in person I was screaming at the ref at a recent Austin FC game just booing the ref was like part of the fun of it so I, we have this really complicated relationship i think as fans uh to the sport around uh how people ref the games i mean i love yelling at bad refing calls and it i don't even have to know the sport particularly well i don't know all the rules in volleyball although i'm a very proud volleyball mom my son plays at a high level but i don't know some of the things but i'll still get upset watched canada play last night in the olympics canadian men against Italy and there were some blocks I'm like that was a touch that was a touch do I know that it was a touch no do I even know the rules about a touch not necessarily Amira yeah I was trying to think of like who are notable refs that jumped to my mind and immediately I thought about NFL long-term NFL now retired ref Ed Hockley and he was easily like one of the most recognizable refs in part because he was the longest tenured ref in the NFL and people like kind of knew him like he he was really notable for his biceps. Uh, they like popped in his little ref uniform um, and he had like fan pages dedicated to him like in his biceps. But really what catapults Ed to fame is in 2008 where he misses a huge call at the end of this game and it was like and Amira what was the miss call because I didn't watch football before I met you and I have no idea what happened back then it was a call that came in the final minute of a game uh, Denver had a second and one right at the one yard line um, and they were down by a touchdown Jay Cutler, quarterback at the time, dropped back and the ball came out of his hands and the Chargers recovered. Um, but Hockley 
ruled it an incomplete pass instead of a fumble. So the fumble would have ended the game essentially, but instead, uh, because the whistle was blown, there was no way to overturn it, even though it was very clear that the call was wrong. He immediately said he got the call wrong, but there's literally no way after a whistle's blown to overturn the call. Um, and then right after that, the uh, Broncos went on to score and scored the two-point conversion and won. And so we got a series of pieces asking if like all of his perfection, and he constantly tested at the highest of the rule book in the NFL um, your referee performance gets graded every week, and those with the highest grades at the end of the season are chosen to be postseason refs and then Super Bowl refs. And he was the constant person in that rotation. So then after this big moment in 2008, you did get a lot of these pieces. And I realized everything that I know about him come from these pieces that are revisiting him that are like, will he ever be able to live down this and how much he's beating himself up? For the record, I think he... Personally was able to, seeing as three years ago after he retired, he was immortalized uh, with a bobblehead from the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame. There's a National Bobblehead Hall of Fame? It's in Milwaukee. The things you now know. Today you're old, Mara. <laughs> so that's like literally the only person I can think of. Like, you know, Sarah Thomas, Mike Carey, kind of, I know, of course. But like even the most identifiable ref to me, I realized really catapulted there because of anger over his decision. It's interesting because I was thinking about tennis because of the umpire that sits in the chair. Like I will often recognize their faces, but like there's one woman from Greece. I'm sorry. I don't know her name, but whenever I see her, I'm like, oh, she's good. Right. But I feel like most people, if they thought of a tennis ump, they would think of the 2018 U.S. Open final guy that penalized Serena. And there was all that controversy around it. That's probably what most people would think of. But I don't know good refs by name. There's so many things that make roughing bad. Timing, space, environment, bad calls, didn't necessarily see. Jess, can you talk a little bit about that? So there's a rundown of things that might affect the way that a ref calls that they might not realize is happening. And so there's a site, a UK site called Interdrive that looked at a bunch of studies, I think mainly around soccer or football. And so there were five different things that they identified. One, the crowd effect. So apparently if the crowd is loud and close to the field, the ref will tend to favor the home team. There's also just home advantage. There's a study that showed that home teams tend to receive less yellow and red cards and have more added time when they're losing. Uh, There's one about player body type. And this is what they said, like um, those who are assumed to have committed fouls were on average taller than the fouled player. When there's an unclear foul tackle situation, referees are more likely to attribute the foul to the taller player. (laughs) When smaller players go to ground, people tend to attribute it to a foul. However, when tall players go to ground, people tend to attribute it to a non-foul context. Uh, There's the idea of the dirty team effect. So if the ref comes in thinking that the team is quote unquote dirty or has refed that team in the past and called a lot of fouls on them, that experience uh, will will travel into this game with them and they'll call more fouls on them. And then there's the nationality bias. uh, According to the site, researchers tracked referee assignments over 12 seasons in the Champs League and found that when a player is the same nationality as the official, the number of beneficial calls given to them was increased by 10% and even up to 15 to 20% in some cases for national team members during later stages of international tournaments. And this is this kind of bias that we all carry with us that referees probably don't even understand is happening in the moment. But it is interesting to think about like all of the outside stuff that can actually affect the type of calls that they're making. Yeah, certainly. And we've covered on this show before, especially in episode 113, when we're talking about um, colonization and soccer at the World Cup, um, 
the effect of racialized refereeing as well. And so like the way that black physicality is perceived and policed. And Brenda has talked about this as well in terms of Latin American soccer players and um, their kind of complicated relationship to refereeing and officiating there. Um, and I think that like the first thing that comes to mind when I think about refereeing and one of the biggest markers of my athletic experience was the way that my teams and myself were like overcarded and like my basketball team, my AAU team, four out of the five starters were black girls in a predominantly white league. And I can barely remember the games where we didn't all have fouls, right? Like notoriously at one championships, the four of us all were on the brink of fouling out very early on. And it felt like we're not doing anything. And the most egregious to me um, was especially in soccer and in, in these football spaces because it was predominantly white. And I felt like every collision, everything you did, um, me and the other women of color on my team were constantly getting cards or warnings or things like that. And what sticks out in my mind the most was we played a team that would hook their fingers in your shorts and try to like pull you like it was kind of underhanded and they also tended to be the team that would like say the most kind of slurish racial slurish stuff so I remember one time we pulled away quite aggressively from them and the force in which we pulled away was what got their attention and not the fact that they were a calling us out of our name and b like physically constraining us and so I think that a lot of people grow up with those experiences and then you get some of those things on like the highest levels of sport where you're like, hmm, this kind of feels like the perception of black physicality, which we know runs through everything, runs through policing, runs through refereeing, runs through school safety officers, um, also impacts um, the games in this way and, and what are, what is called. I wanted to just sort of add on that, like the first time I was racially abused, it was on the pitch and um, we're lined up for a set piece, like a corner kick. And I have a tendency to lean in. I'm, you know, and I was known as the aggressive one. And I'm not sure if looking back, and I didn't have a language, certainly didn't then, to read into that as being the aggressive brown girl, you know, like being loud. And on one hand, the character traits that I have are really important for a striker, to be tenacious, to be relentless. But then, you know, I still get categorized. But what happened was she called me a racial slur and I was so angry. I ended up punching her, but the ref didn't hear her. So I got ejected for, can you imagine like under 12 getting ejected for two games? It was, it was embarrassing. And as, to this day, I still think about it. And I still think about how no one knew how to act. And the ref just thought that I was punching and wouldn't listen to me when I was trying to say, this is what happened. And my coach certainly didn't advocate for me at the time and had no idea what to do. I was like, why did you have to do that? Why couldn't you just ignore her? And the argument was, well, I didn't hear it. So I cannot do anything. So if the ref actually, and this is part of the system of, of football, that if the ref doesn't see it, it can't be issued as a foul if it's not witnessed by the officials. Um, there was one thing that I've been thinking as we were prepping for this episode was corruption. You know, one of the most egregious offenders of corruption in football is it was a Nigerian official who was in 2019 banned for life from refereeing at any level. His name is Ibrahim Chebu. He was fined 200,000 Swiss francs, which is about $250,000. And it was said, and I'm just quoting a CBC article, that the Niger official was paid bribes to influence the outcomes of national team games played in Africa, the Middle East, and South America. And his favored tactic was awarding questionable penalty kicks 
often for real and imagined handball offenses, to help increase the number of goals scored. So I just I think about that and I think about the implications politically and socially of when a team loses and how if it's already stacked against them, how unfair that is. So when we're angry about calls like this, one thing we do is yell at refs. So does it actually do anything for the person, Jessica? <laughs> I have no idea. So now that I am a soccer aficionado from all of the soccer that I have been watching, <laughs> one of the things that I think is so funny is that every time the ref makes the call, it's like almost instantly there is a group of men. They like group around him and start screaming in his face and they and he has to do the hand thing and they'll back off it. Like I just don't they do it in basketball too. I does that work? Does it like it ever work? Is it's just for the players themselves to like let off steam? towards the ref I just think it's so funny it's just constant and I'm like they seem so unswayed by everything that is happening so I don't know I just think it's a funny part of the refing process is like hurting these men like keeping their emotions in check and stuff certainly women yell at the refs in in basketball Diana Taurasi is incredibly famous for it yeah I think it's also like who's doing the yelling like um back when I had the conversation with Erica Dombach head coach of Penn State and current assistant coach at the Olympics with the U.S. national team, I asked her like how she was like so calm on the sidelines all the time because she's like remarkably calm. And she was like, well, she's like learned how to do that. But one of the things both her and Ann Cook, who's the assistant coach, said is they actually were working on making sure they were better advocates for their players. And there was times where she felt like she was so conscious of the perception of yelling at the ref that she wouldn't say anything, but thought that something was over the line or that a player was hurt. They were talking about like needing to be vocal as coaches and tell the ref, you need to constantly hear me because I'm worried about my player safety. And then of course, like, I think that line gets very muddled. Your other psychological point, Jess, is like when we're sitting at home on our couch, right? Or you're in a bar or whatever, and you're screaming. I mean, what is the psychology behind that? Like, I absolutely think maybe that's just to make yourself feel better. To You just need it to be noted. Like, why do people leave reviews or call hotlines? Like, I feel like people like to like to note, right, their opinion on things, right? The comment sections. Yeah, yeah. It's like screaming at the refs to me is like the walking embodiment of that. I like that. I also think it's interesting you bring up like coaches and, and yelling at refs because there are times I think of like, a basketball coach getting getting a technical and ejected from the game for screaming at the ref. And I there are times where I really I admire the coach. I'm like, good for you. Like, good for you for standing up for your team and all that. And so yeah, it is very complicated, I think. Refs exist so that there will be quote unquote fair play and everyone will follow the rules. But then they get just because they're like the thing that does that, everyone directs all of their feelings uh at the ref constantly. Who wants to do that? <laughs> Who wants to be a ref? Goodness. Well, I remember last year in the Wubble and I was watching Chicago Skies, James Wade was advocating for the players. And I remember he got attacked. And part of me is like, he's doing something valiant by defending the players against this huge injustice. Against the man. Against the man. Yeah. And we're so invested <laughs> in sport that when these things happen, it's like there's this righteousness that comes up. And this indignation and you're like, no, this is unfair. And then, you know, that carries. Well, it also makes me think of Jess's uh, tremendous piece on fairness in sports. Um, but right, like that constant pursuit of like, what is fair and equitable, right, is the guise of all this in terms of like angst mm -hmm. against the refs and how the refs are supposed to be like the gatekeepers of fairness. And so what we've seen, right, Shireen, is like attempts to 
help this like fairness process within refereeing, which sometimes means taking the decisions out of people's hands and putting it into like, I don't know, machines. Right. So technology, if we can't trust people, if they can be bribed, if they can be corrupt, can we trust machines? Is this a possible solution or plausible solution? Jessica, let's talk about tech. Yeah, I think it's so interesting, the turn to tech as a way to mitigate human subjectivity. And and that's such a good point, Amira, that like, they are the locus of fairness within the game, the refs. But we also recognize constantly that they are humans who fuck up. And like we are just holding all of that at once. And so it's really interesting to me when we get a new piece of technology that is coming in to mitigate that subjectivity, Hawkeye in tennis, VAR in soccer, uh, robots as umpires in baseball. There's like I remember watching a whole real sports episode about how much better these like robot machines are than actual umpires. But people get so angry about this kind of technology coming in to to help with this problem that everyone is already so angry about. I mean, it it's, makes sense. I mean, Brenda's a huge VAR fan. It's like for all of the things Brenda does not like, uh, she definitely likes VAR because it removes that kind of subjectivity within the game because you can check on things that you couldn't before, handballs in particular, as Shereen was talking about with that um, corrupt official. There are legitimate concerns, though, like what happens especially at the pro level, if we're subbing in all this technology, what is going on at the lower levels? And I think about this with tennis in particular. So when it went to Hawkeye fully, right, for the U.S. Open during the pandemic, I think it was fully Hawkeye doing all of the calls. So they got rid of all the line judges and just had the umpire in the chair. And the thing that people kept bringing up was that you become an umpire because you're a line judge, And like you learn the game of tennis and how to judge it and how to ref it properly by going up the ranks as a line judge and eventually sitting in the chair and doing that. So like if we're removing the learning process that comes from being a ref that allows you to be the overall umbrella ref, um, what's being lost there? And I think that's such an interesting quandary of like how do we manage the knowledge of the game? Because I don't think you can fully remove humans, Um, but also this attempt to be more fair. And, And the other thing I'll say about this is just always the caveat that technology is created by humans. So like technology is not some perfect, like there's a human subjectivity with any kind of technology that you have. But man, I love Hawkeye. Like I'm so glad that tennis uses it now. But I do wonder what that will mean if we fully get rid of line judges. What what would the impact possibly be on the umpires in the chair? Yeah, so the other, you know, thing that I think of, and and go with me here because at first it's going to seem like a little bit of a stretch. You know, when we talk about prison abolition, when we talk about, community policing and stuff like that, a lot of times it's a hard conversation to have because we don't have a framework for thinking about it, right? People are like, well, what would it look like without cops? Like, what would it, Mm. you know, when I interviewed Benji um, about abolition Mm -hmm. in sports a few episodes ago, one of the things they uh, made a point about was like, well, we already have places in which we know what that looks like. Colleges, for instance, where you see self-policing outside of the structure of law. And so it made me think about where we saw currently in sports where there was an absence of rest or a different model of refereeing or officiating sport. Um, And so the example that I thought about was Ultimate Frisbee. Now, we've had Ultimate uh, folks on the show, of course, and, you know, growing up in Western Massachusetts, we're like Ultimate Central, baby. Um, So I grew up playing Summer Ultimate. And one of the features of Ultimate is that the players are the refs. The, The players make their own calls. And this is not simply like a kind of quirky, fun feature. It's actually 
to the core ethos of the sport. This is the text from one rule book. Ultimate relies on a spirit of sportsmanship that places the responsibility for fair play on the player. Highly competitive play is encouraged, but never at the expense of mutual respect among competitors, adherence to the agreed upon rules, or the basic joy of play. And how it works in practice is like, if you feel like you got fouled, you say, hey, you fouled me, right? But one of the things that's been interesting in Ultimate, especially it's been getting more professional and global, and even at one point the IOC was considering it for Olympic inclusion, was as it moved up, there's this kind of outside insistence like, hey, well, now you need to introduce refs, right? Because hmm. what happens if you have bad calls? One of the things that, especially in talks with the IOC, is they were like, oh, what the IOC likes about us is that we're like most adhered to their model, like mutual respect and all of this stuff. But what will some outside person, right? Like how will some outside person watching know better than the players if that was really a foul or if that was really what you're doing? And so some of the um, negotiations where it stands now is there's some leagues that have introduced like not quite a ref, but what they call like a kind of observer who's more like a mediator, right? So less like, hi, I'm in control. This is what it is. But more like an outside person who's like, okay, well, if you guys have a disagreement from my standpoint, this is kind of went down. And it's like playground rules, like obviously, and when you call your own fouls, and of course, sometimes people, they're like, okay, no, you weren't really fouled. But I think part of it is like within that culture, within the idea is that everybody does have a kind of sense of like what is really a foul or not and can tell each other, no, that wasn't foul, you're just bullshitting. So ultimate is one model of refereeing and officiating outside of what we usually see. Jess, do you have another example? I do have another example, youth tennis. So the junior level of tennis and apparently also in high school, they don't have line judges. And so the players themselves, which often they're very young, um, are the ones calling whether or not it's in or out. And as you're talking about ultimate, I'm like, but people then cheat. Like I can't get away from that cynical notion. And Mm so I actually came across this essay at Sports Illustrated by a high school tennis player. And he was critiquing the lack of line judges because he says high school tennis is now just fully corrupt, that like people cheat all the time, that there's massive unfair calls. And he had this one example of a time when he was sure that the ball was out and the other player had said it was in and he got in trouble for for fighting it, like that he wasn't being sportsman like and how frustrating that was as a player and if the high school tennis is a mess and da 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 and so it's so interesting because I am so cynical about the idea of sportsmanship I guess those feelings that were coming up when you were I was like they cheat like <laughs> but I get honestly I, I get that frustration right because it's so frustrating when you feel like something's unfair and like I this is gonna feel like out of left field but like it, this is what it makes me feel of you know how competitive I am me and Michael were on one of those like newlyweds games on a Disney cruise ship. Of course. This is like the most Amira story ever. <laughs> Keep ever. going. And we were on a roll. And the question was, what did like Mike first notice about me or whatever? And it's like a running joke that he noticed that I didn't have an ass. Okay. That's like the running joke. I know that's what he said. So I said, oh, of course, it was my quote unquote, like, like as a joke. And they said I got it wrong. And I was like, I know for a fact that that's not wrong. It's just that they weren't like fully listening. And it made me so mad. Like I will, I will constantly think about that. I wish you guys could see her face right now. Like her eyes are gigantic. 
I'm like really <laughs> upset about it. Like, and I had like one too many drinks at that point. So I was very vocal. I was like, I am a professor. I know things. You that need a mediator. Not true. That was incorrect. But like, so I get it. It's also like sport for a lot of people is about winning. And not just sport. Like if it's a newlywed game or I remember uh, my ex-husband and I used to play mini putt. And I, one point, I almost pushed him over a little bridge because I wanted to win that game. And I offer no apologies for it. Like whatever. But the idea of youth being in charge of this and knowing at that point that honesty and sportsmanship is paramount. I'm sorry. If I was 12 and when I coach, honestly, when I coach young girls playing soccer. You tell them to cheat. I don't tell them to cheat. <laughs> I say if the ball goes out, girls pick it up and put it in to save time. And just do it. Like don't stop and look at the rough and go whose call is it pick up the damn ball you take that and you move which i think is strategy it's not cheating it's strategy you call putt putt mini putt it's mini golf mini golf mini putt oh my gosh i agree with shireen on a saying mini mini golf she called it mini putt i i, I like mini between mini putt and mini okay. golf but it's usually mini golf oh mini putt so that last story you told was about mini golf yeah so the bridge was in a mini yeah golf. yeah now that makes it more understanding See, told you we don't call it mini putt <laughs> For an extended discussion on officiating, refereeing, and what could be considered good solutions or ideas to improve that sphere, head over to Patreon and we have more discussion. If you love listening to us here on Burn It All Down, then what's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show? And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So if you're ready to do more than just listen to us talk about your favorite team, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box in this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com join. Are you, like us, ready to watch Simone Biles, Katie Ledecky, Sue Bird, and Allison Felix bring home gold? The 2020 Tokyo Olympics are underway, and NBC is ready to showcase the women who are winning gold and inspiring generations. Check out the On Her Turf at the Olympics daily podcast throughout the Olympic Games to hear hosts Lindsay Zarniak, MJ Acosta-Ruiz, and Olympian Lolo Jones bring you the action that's leading headlines and winning golds. Follow On Her Turf on Twitter and Instagram and listen to On Her Turf at the Olympics on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. 
Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For our interview, which drops on Thursday, Jessica talks with journalist Mirren Fader about her new book, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. They talk about Mirren's basketball skills, how she got into writing, about sports, and of course, about NBA champion and two-time MVP, Giannis Atutokounmpo. I was just so moved by the more vulnerable sides of Giannis um, because I think at the time everyone just kind of talked about his freakish athleticism and they didn't really talk about, you know, who he is as a person and um, what he's like as a big brother and and just how, how he's gone through so much with the death of his father. Now on to everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Jessica, what are you torching? So the 2020, 2021, whatever you want to call them, Summer Olympics are in full swing. But I'd like to look ahead to the 2032 Olympics, which we learned this week will be hosted by Brisbane, Australia. The IOC has instituted a new process for selecting cities to host the Games because of all the corruption involved in the previous bidding wars. The IOC now uses two panels to review potential cities and make recommendations to the organization's board. In February, the selection committee said Brisbane was its, quote, preferred partner. And so the IOC's membership votes last week were just actually a mere formality. But corrupt institutions stay corrupting. And so there have been concerns about this new process, which, surprise, happens out of the public eye and in secret therefore has no transparency. And it turns out the first time they use this method for selecting a host city, it just so happens to go to Australia. And the current president of the Australia Olympic Committee is John Coates, who, as the New York Times put it, quote, is also an IOC vice president and a close ally of Bach, Bach being Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC. The IOC has, of course, said anyone with a conflict of interest had no role in this selection, but you'll simply have to take their word for it, since there's no transparency and just a questionable outcome. Coates has amassed a lot of power in the IOC. He heads the IOC's legal commission and presides over the Court of Arbitration for Sport. These two positions are significant. Rob Kohler, the Director General of Global Athlete and Advocacy Group for Athletes, told the New York Times, quote, For example, the IOC Athlete Commission indicated that the IOC Legals Affair Commission, headed by Coates, will look at sanctioning rules for athletes that break podium protests in Tokyo. If an athlete wants to appeal this sanction, which the sanction is by the legal affairs run by Coates, it goes to CAS, the Court for Arbitration of Sport, also headed by Coates. He's in charge of the appeal body as well as the body that does the sanction. 
That's not a separation of powers, nor does it scream independence. One other job that Coates has in the IOC. Are y'all ready for this? This is so good. I love it. Bach tasked Coates with deciding the new process by which cities would be selected to host the games. So this new fair process that chose Brisbane, Australia, of which Coates is the president of the Australian Olympic Committee, that process was created by Coates himself. It's amazing how that happens in the IOC. It's just, I, you can't make this shit up. But you just have to trust them. It's like the trailblazers, right? Um, you, just have to, you just have to believe that everything is fine. So you can't really expect anything else from the IOC, but I'm still going to burn all of this. Coates, the way he wields power, and how the IOC decides all these things. So burn. Burn. Amira. I have four Olympic-related things that I'm very mad about, and I'm just going to run down the list because I can't decide which I'm more mad about. I'm mad about all of them, to be honest. The first thing, you might recall uh, about two weeks ago, the IOC reversed their ridiculous decision to not allow nursing infants into the Olympic Village and Olympic space. And while people applauded that, um, there's new information emerging about why we should maybe hold our applause. Spanish synchronized swimmer Ona Carbonell um, talked about how even though this reversal happened, she still was not going to be able to bring her child. Why, you asked? Well, because the IOC's decision to let people bring their child and the child's other caretaker put them still at an off-site location, meaning that if you want to go nurse your child you know, multiple times a day, you have to leave the bubble area of your team. You have to put your health at risk and your team's health at risk to go to a different location to nurse your child. Logistically, this remains a nightmare. So just letting people come does not logistically solve the problem if you're not letting people easily and accessibly still feed their children. So that's ridiculous. The USOPC is also being ridiculous because Becca Myers, one of our most decorated Paralympians, recently completely withdrew from the games. Why, you ask? Because the USOPC is being complete fuckers. She's a deafblind Paralympian. They are not letting her bring her mom as her personal care assistant. Their response was they already had a PCA available to Paralympians in swimming. Um, Let's just be clear. They have a single PCA for 33 Paralympic swimmers, 10 of them who are visually impaired. Just the math doesn't add up, the USOPC. And it is terrible and it's heartbreaking that because she can't get a reasonable accommodation, right, and she can't have somebody safe and who she trusts to help her at the Olympic Games, she's choosing to withdraw. She deserved better than that. That's some bullshit. Speaking of some bullshit also from Team USA, let me talk to you really quick about this fencer dude, Team USA alternate Alan Haddock, who should not be at the Olympic Games. Uh, He has been under safe sport investigation. There was literally a letter sent last month by multiple women in fencing, including two Olympians, who said they don't feel safe with him being on the team. The response from the U.S. Olympic Committee was to say, oh, we'll we'll tell Safe Sport, who's already investigating him, they already know, and to send the women who wrote the letter a list of available mental health services, including telling them they can get on Headspace and address their mental health concerns. They're not concerned about that. What they're concerned about is that you're letting abuser on the Olympic team, despite him being under investigation, and the compromise was that he could go to the games, but he can't be in the Olympic Village. And he's mad about that. Turning around and having the audacity to say, 
I'm mad because it's infringing on my right to be in the village. You shouldn't be there. You're harming people. People are telling you they're deeply concerned. The fact that he's included at expense of other people's safety is wild. And lastly, that brings me to yet another similar case of Taylor Crabb. Taylor Crabb, USA volleyball person who was serving a suspension from international competition because he's not supposed to be near girls. We don't know the extent of the investigation. We know that the ruling from Safe Sport was that you can't compete internationally. You can't be near girls. He violated that and coached a junior camp. And then they shortened the suspension, let him compete at Worlds, and let him go to the Olympics. He was all set to go to the Olympics. He got COVID. He won't be at the Games. But everything is framing it like, oh, no, he can't be there because of COVID without pausing to say, hey, he shouldn't have been there in the first place because he had a suspension preventing him from doing that because he keeps violating the order to stay away from junior girls because of a pattern of abuse. What is happening? What is happening? Let people be safe. Give them the accommodations they need. Let them nurse their damn children and keep abusers away from people who say we're harmed and concerned by their inclusion on this damn team while we're trying to compete at the stupid Olympics. Like, geez, burn. Burn. I'm going to go last, and I do want to offer a trigger warning for this. Last night was NHL draft night, and for hardcore hockey fans, it's a really big deal. Um, well, there was a bit of a bit of a damper on last night's event. So it was Friday, July 23rd. Logan Mayu was drafted 31st in the first round by the Montreal Canadiens, despite being convicted last year in Sweden for a sex crime. And I'm going to be quoting from a piece in The Athletic. Logan Mayu, who actually withdrew from the NHL draft earlier this week following his conviction last year in Sweden, was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens with the 31st pick of the first round on Friday. Mayu was convicted in Swedish court in December for taking a photo of a woman performing a sex act without her consent and circulating it among some teammates. At least 11 teams removed the defenseman from their list ahead of the draft, which is something The Athletic previously reported. Um, and the Montreal Canadiens had an incredible postseason this year, but what a fucking way to alienate fans who have been revived in a place. Like, what a way to come out and be like, hey, everybody, we're just going to draft this person who's been convicted of sex crimes. Mm, yeah, no. The Montreal Canadiens issued a statement and they said, quote, the Canadians are aware of the situation and by no means minimize the severity of Logan's actions. Logan understands the impact of his actions. His recent public statement is a genuine acknowledgement of his poor behavior and first step on his personal journey. We are making a commitment to accompany Logan on his journey by providing him with the tools to mature and the necessary support to guide him in his development. We are also committed to raising awareness amongst our players about the repercussion of their actions on the lives of others, end quote. What repercussions? He was still drafted in the first fucking round and he'll continue to be fine because there's no culture of accountability, of actual accountability in this sport. Are they likening his, his crime to immaturity? Is that what we're doing? Is he getting a pass because he has potential and we don't want to absolutely fuck up his career, his potential, what he could be? I'm angry about this for many, many reasons. Also just want to point out, and this is something Jessica tweeted, Marc Bergevin, who is the GM of the Montreal Canadiens, was also director of player personnel in 2010 with the Chicago NHL team. This is a fucking mess. The same NHL team that's constantly being investigated. And just shout out to Rick Westhead of DSN for his incredible reporting on players who are now suing the club for being sexually abused by a former coach. So 
I enjoyed the postseason of Montreal, but I'm happy to hate and continue to disassociate from a team that upholds misogyny and ignores the action of players because they value them more than the lives of women. Same team also who signed Nick Cousins, also implicated in the sexual assault case in Ontario, and hired Sean Burke assistant goalie coach who was accused of repeatedly beating his wife. So Montreal Canadiens, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, let's let some light into our lives. Amira, who is the luminous athlete? Our luminous athlete of the week is Luke Prokop of the Nashville Predators um, and is the first player under NHL contract to come out as gay. Shout out to you, Luke. And for athlete, the dazzling debut, 24-year-old Uche Eke is the first gymnast to represent Nigeria at the Olympics. And you're so happy to see him there. Jessica, who is our eternal flame? Marta. <laughs> That's it. No. Marta, the Brazilian soccer star, is the first person ever to score goals in five consecutive Olympics. She scored a brace against China in Brazil's win. After her second goal, Marta formed a T-shape with her arms, a dedication to her fiancé and Orlando Pride teammate, Tony Presley. And our northern star for this week is Christine Sinclair, captain of the Canadian women's national team, becomes the first Canadian and the fourth player ever to make it three hundred international appearances for their country. As we know, Sinki is the top international goal scorer of all time. Jess, who's the bright light? Barbara Banda, Zambian footballer, is the first African woman to score three or more goals at the Olympics and as of this recording has scored six, two hat tricks in two games, tying her for the most goals scored by an African player in the men's or women's game at an Olympics. And Amira. Tell me about our match lighters. Match lighters of the week are uh, the Players Association of the National Women's Soccer League, who launched a new website, nomoresidehustles.com. Please check it out. Uh, it's a site where you can spread the word and sign the pledge, agreeing that professional athletes, regardless of gender, shouldn't have to work two, three, or four jobs to support themselves. Of course, this is coming from a league in the NWSL, where 75% of the league makes $31,000 or less. Multiple people have worked multiple jobs. If you check out their website, you can sign the pledge, you can support it, and it's calling on multiple leagues to ensure that athletes have um, ideal labor conditions and don't have to do all these side hustles to survive. They are our match lighters of the week. Can I get a drum roll, please? <laughs> Literal torchbearer of the week is Naomi Osaka. The final celebration of the Tokyo 2020 opening ceremonies was Japanese-born Naomi Osaka lighting the Tokyo Olympic cauldron. Osaka was passed the torch from Yankees legend Hideki Matsui, and her absolutely gorgeous white outfit, accented with red lines, also matching the colors of the Japanese flag, also matching her red box braids. And those <laughs> braids, yes, girl! And she climbed the steps and lit the cauldron. Naomi Osaka took to social media later and said, greatest athletic achievement I will ever have in my life. I have no words to describe the feelings I have right now, but I do know that I am currently filled with gratefulness and thankfulness. Love you guys. Thank you. What's good? Jessica, what is good? This is a very hard one for me this week. Um, I had a really hard week. So on Friday, 
I was deadlifting. I was warming up to deadlift, so it wasn't even a ton of weight. And I, my lower back popped. I'm not sure if there was a sound, but there was certainly a feeling. I was in a lot of pain. By Saturday morning, it was so intense that Aaron wanted to call an ambulance. Uh, we weren't sure that we could get me out of the house, but um, he was able to get me to the car. He took me to the ER. Everything was so bad that they actually gave me two shots, which hurt like hell. Uh, one was anti-inflammatory drug to try to calm my muscles down, and the other one was just straight morphine. Uh, and then they gave me pain meds with narcotics in them. They gave me a muscle relaxer, and they sent me home. Uh, I feel like I slept through Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, probably part of Wednesday. Uh, it was just a really tough time, and so like I feel like I'm going to cry. I guess what's good in my world is Aaron. <laughs> he was amazing this week. I still, I mean, I couldn't walk on my own for days. And he would lead me around the house. I uh, would grab onto his forearms and I couldn't sit down. So he would have to help me on and off the toilet. He'd have to like pull my pants on and off because I couldn't bend over. Anyway, Aaron is good. <laughs> Uh, on Monday, it was our anniversary, 18 years married. We were supposed to go have a nice dinner at a restaurant we've always wanted to go to, which, of course, we couldn't do because I couldn't sit in a chair. Uh, and he was great about all of that. So Aaron was, was very good <laughs> this week. Um, also, Amira brought me my favorite ice cream from a local ice cream shop, Lick, on Friday night. Um, and chocolates. Those chocolates really good, Amira. I don't feel like I told you that. Um <laughs> That was all good, but man, what a week it was. I'm glad you're feeling better, Jess. Me too. Amira, what's good? Yeah, well, obviously, I'm in Austin Yay. now. Um, yeah, we made it here. It was not a cute drive, uh, <laughs> but we we did it. We're in the house. We've been here for about a week um, and mostly unpacked. There's tacos. Uh also, just like so many food options, and I feel like I'm just like in a utopia, because um, you know your girl's been struggling in state college. So it has been a wonderful week where like we went, I went to H E B to like get food to like you know stop spending money and like actually cook, and then I was like, except absolutely need to go get some dumplings and like something from Bird Bird Biscuit and like oh, here's some rolled ice cream. Like, there's always something. <laughs> so it's been great. You know, um, the kids are doing well. Me and Samari went to uh, a Beatles concert, but it was, like, performed by Black people who were performing covers of Black people covering Beatles songs. So it was, like, Aretha Franklin's version of that. It was, it was so good. Samari loved it. She was, like, even her, like, teenage angsty exterior couldn't stop her from, like, outright joy and by the end of it she was like literally up dancing on her feet because she like couldn't even contain herself and these two little old white ladies who were dancing like the whole show like came over and kidnapped her and she like danced with them during the last set um under the stars it was just a beautiful night we went to an escape room um we escaped we made some friends while we did that um and i got to see uh my fam from back in massachusetts who run a frida fridays and Las Ofrendas, like the biggest 
um, marketplace here for um, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and queer vendors. I went with the kids last night and we got uh, a bunch of beautiful jewelry. Samari got some vintage shirt. You know, she my girl loves to thrift. I never really understand how it's going to work. And then she like makes it work. It's like totally very cute. So we did that last night. And so it's just been a really fun week of getting to know Austin and, and reconnecting with people and, you know, eating. And of course, to cap it all off, Ted Lasso season two premiered. Um, and I got to get some of my grad school friends to do a rewatch with me. Um, that's, that's my what's good. Um, I will go and just say that although I was really rooting for the Phoenix Suns and Chris Paul in particular to get a ring, I was really happy with Giannis and winning and being phenomenal and going to order chicken nuggets and, you know, live streaming it with his partner. I love all of that. I love him shouting out about his brothers and Malika Andrews, who was amazing, by the way, on NBA Finals sideline reporting. That made me really happy. And, you know, it's distracting me from thesis writing, which is what I'm doing. Also, things in Ontario have opened up a little bit and um, like quite a bit. And I've been able to see friends like a lot. And that has been amazing. It's been absolutely, you know, it fills my cup to see people that I love. Happy birthday to Sabrina Razak, somebody I love so dearly. She's a PhD candidate at U of T in uh, kinesiology. And I, Sabs, I love you so much. Going to your karaoke party tonight. And I'm very excited about that because I have not done karaoke probably in years. So I'm assuming it will be a Shakira song or something retro related. Also, happy birthday belated to my son, Salahuddin, who's Team Ontario Volleyball Camp. He's away this weekend doing that. And I love you. And I will resist the urge to go see you at the overnight camp and check on you and climb up the window on the ladder and make sure you're okay. I will not do that. What we are watching this week... Athletes Unlimited began its inaugural lacrosse season last week, and you can watch the games on CBS Sports Network, Fox Sports, and YouTube. Also, the Olympics. Little thing. <laughs> Just as a small thing. And that's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstag. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcasting Network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our fire merch at our bonfire store. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burnitalldown. And lastly, burn on and not out.